0: History can be found anywhere, even in your own backyard. So join us as we search the land looking for the stories that helped shape this nation. Come on the porch, grab a drink, and join us for a little bit of history from the homestead. Hey there, History Buffs, and welcome to this episode of the History from the Homestead podcast. I am your host, Thomas Carroll, and today we have our first return guest. Uh, We welcome back Rob Hilliard. Now, Rob has written on sports history and the outdoors for over three decades. Rob started as a reporter for the Pittsburgh Tribune, Tribune Review and has written articles for outlets such as Upland Almanac, Pennsylvania Wildlife, and Pittsburgh History Magazine. In 2012, his first book, A Season on the Allegheny, was published. It quickly hit the top ten in two Amazon categories and has garnered national attention since its publication. Rob's newest book, entitled In Freedom's Shadow, is due out November 17th, 2023. It's up for pre-order now on Amazon, so I suggest you go out and pick it up. It's an excellent book. So without further ado, let's welcome Rob back to the show. Hey there, History Buffs, and welcome to this episode of the History from the Homestead podcast. I am your host, Thomas Carroll, and for the first time rejoining me is Rob Hilliard. Uh, and if you remember, he we talked oh, a couple months ago about the Allegheny National Forest, and now you have your brand new book out, In Freedom Shadow which you were kind enough to lend me an advanced copy. And I recommend to anybody, I'm just going to plug it now, go out and get it. It is a wonderful book, Rob.
1: Well, thanks very much, Thomas. I, I obviously appreciate you saying that. And um, I appreciate you inviting me back on the show. I'm, I'm, it's great to talk to you again, and I'm excited to be back on.
0: Yeah, I, I guess maybe this podcast is starting to make it a little bit when you when you start to have
1: repeat guests. so. <laughs> maybe so
0: So it might be a
1: good indicator
0: so let's get a brief synopsis of the book and I want to let everybody know because you addressed this in your book this is a based on a true story it's not a hundred percent but from what I've what I've read and researched briefly since I went through it I suffice to say it's probably 90 97 98 percent Historically correct.
1: Well, I I hope so. Uh yeah. And so just to, you know, kind of hit that head on, the basis of the story itself is well, quick synopsis, I guess. Um there was a a man named John Scoble who was a slave in Mississippi on a plantation uh prior to the outbreak of the Civil War. And once uh, the war started, um, just as happened with many other people across the South. Um, his master volunteered for the Army, for Confederate Army. Um, they went north into Virginia um, around the time of the first Battle of Bull Run or Manassas. And, but what happened with Scoble was he escaped, got across uh, ultimately into Washington, D.C. And so that's, um, from that point, I guess I'll, I'll do. A, a, this is a little different from the ba- the previous book because it was nonfiction, and as you said, this one's fiction. Uh, this one is also a spy thriller, so I have to be worried about spoilers, which I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have to worry about with uh, a season on the Allegheny, um, but I'll give your your listeners a small spoiler here, at least. Uh, when Scoble got to Washington D.C., the person who was the um, head of what was then called the, the Secret Service, but it was basically the intelligence service or spy service for the Union Army, was Alan Pinkerton, who was the head of the Pinkerton Detective Agency. And Pinkerton was, he had been hired by General George McClellan, who at that time was the head of the Union Army. Um, he, Pinkerton, was interviewing the many Escape slaves who were coming cro- across from the south into the north so they were being picked up um, by union soldiers they were kind of you know gathered together and brought to washington to be interviewed by pinkerton and his his team of operatives and what they were the reason they were doing that was what better source of information about southern troop positioning, numbers of, of soldiers, uh, armaments, all those kinds of things than people who had just been there. And obviously the escaped slaves were more than happy to provide that information where they could, because anything they could do to help the Union army win the war was going to benefit them and, and benefit their families and friends who uh, they left behind who were still enslaved. So, um. That was the process that was going on at that time. And like I said, Pinkerton was interviewing these people when Scoble came through and Pinkerton interviewed him. um, He found out a couple of things that, that made Scoble stand out for one thing he could read and write, uh, which most slaves could not primarily because it was illegal to educate slaves in the South at that most of the South at that time. Um, and So that gave him an advantage, but he was also um, intelligent, quick-witted, quick to pick up on things. So because of that, Pinkerton actually recruited Scoble to join his Secret Service and become an undercover spy for the Union. And the way we know all of this is about 20 years after the Civil War ended, Pinkerton wrote a book um, called uh, The Spy of the Rebellion, I believe was the correct title. And he talked about a number of his operatives um, who were who were uh, in his secret service during the Civil War. Um, but he talked specifically about Scoble. And, and he told the story that I just told, that you know Scoble came to him, he interviewed him, he liked him. He thought he'd be a good fit, so he recruited him into his service. And uh, and then he sent Scoble back into the Confederacy, of course, in the guise of being a slave, um, on two separate missions, one where he went south through down the eastern shore of Maryland uh, and then up into northern Virginia, and then a second one where he accompanied uh, another female operative, um, that worked for Pinkerton and they actually went into Richmond, which was the, of course, the capital of the Confederacy. And, uh, they were spying within arm's reach of, uh, of the Confederate white house in Richmond. So, uh, so that part we all know to be, we know all that to be true. Um, there are of course, lots and lots of unknowns in, in between there. And, um, so my approach to writing in freedom shadow was to take that that skeleton and put some meat on the bones and originally i when i first heard about this and i I worked on the book for uh it's a little bit over seven years now since i started it was the summer of 2016 when i started and um the my original intent was to actually write another non-fiction book about Scoble Um, and but when I found out how thin the source material was there just wasn't other than just regurgitating what Pinkerton had written um, you know there wasn't much to tell so the more I thought about it and um, again researched uh, what was known uh, I decided that writing a novel was the best way to approach it it was something that I always kind of wanted to do anyway and uh so like i said i i took the approach of using that as a framework and then trying to put some some meat on those bones and develop it into a a fully fleshed out story
0: and you kind of you already kind of got where i was going to head to with it next i i wanted i wanted everybody to see why it had to well i shouldn't say had to be but it pretty much ended up as a based on a true story because. There's just records of escaped slaves from the South just don't exist. You know they yeah. did, they didn't keep track of that. I mean, John Scoble most likely that was not even his real name at birth.
1: You're absolutely uh, right. Yep.
0: So and... the, the record, yeah, I, I he was one of the more well known uh, escaped slaves turned spy. And even then, there's there's just the information is not there. The records don't exist.
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. And there's a, so just to kind of dive into that a little bit. Um, there, like I said, P- Pinkerton wrote about him in his book. Um, the way I stumbled on the Scoble was just a uh, an article. I was you know. <laughs> Like as so many people uh, end up having happened to them, I went down a little uh, Google wormhole, rabbit hole, and uh, was looking for something else and sort of stumbled onto uh, this article that was actually written. It was actually on the CIA website and it was called Black Dispatches. And it talked about exactly what we're talking about here, how um, these slaves were coming across, and they were uh, being interviewed to gather intelligence, um, and kind of drew some parallels between more modern um, times when um, you know you might have deserters from an army or, or again captured people, and they would be uh, questioned to, to get intelligence, to gather intelligence, it, or even refugees, um, which in effect the slaves were, um, and. Um, So that they're a great source of intelligence and these escaped slaves, you know, serve that same role. Um, So, but one of the things that this wasn't really addressed in the CIA article, but again, as I was doing more research, there are some historians and I'll, I'll, I guess I maybe should preface all this by saying I don't consider myself a historian. I'm a student of history. I enjoy it. Um, but I'm standing on the backs of others when it comes to research. I I research things, but I'm not, you know, going to the National Archives and going through all those things. I'm, I'm basically leaning on some really excellent research that other folks have done over the uh, last century and a half. Um, but the um, there are some, at least one anyway, historian who claims that, John Scoble was not a real person. And the reason is there's not, there's no documentation beyond Pickerton's book. Um, On the other hand, there are many, many um, very learned, um, you know, legitimate historians who believe that he is a real person. And what they'll point to is exactly what you just said. So you have a man who was first of all, born into slavery. So there's, you know, no record of him. Uh, Second of all, he was a spy. So, there wasn't very much, uh, you know, spies don't typically have a lot of documentation, even the ones today that we know are spies or, or people from, let's say, World War II or the Cold War that we know are spies. There's still sometimes scant information about them because they're spies. Right. Um, and and they're, it's in their best interest to keep things hidden. Um, and the third reason is um, really because of Pinkerton's approach and when he when he wrote his book, which was that he named um people who were who at the time of the Civil War uh their names became known because they were well in one case because uh they were they were discovered which again I don't want to get too far into uh spoiler territory here um but um so their names were in the newspaper and uh, so he names them by name, but there were other agents who worked for him whose names did not did not become publicly known during the Civil War, and so when he wrote his book, even though it was twenty years later, he used pseudonyms for them. He used different names, and um, one of those was was the female agent that I mentioned a, min- a minute ago, um, and but it's entirely possible that one of them was Scoble as well and so you know you have somebody who had no documentation of their birth or really their life because they were slave then they became a spy then when the story of their spying was ultimately told it's entirely possible that the that the author pinkerton used a pseudonym to to continue to disguise their identity and so when you combine all those things yeah um you know again it's nearly impossible to at the distance of 160 years 160 plus to sort through all that and go backwards and and lay hands on that documentation that that would really give you the answers that you know you'd like to have so
0: yeah uh, and even worse to add one more ripple to it any of the uh, records in the south at the during and at the end of the Civil War, who knows how many of those were destroyed?
1: Right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, they know in Richmond in the Capitol, when, you know, in uh spring of 1865, when when the Union Army was basically closing the uh the noose around the Capitol, um, they did burn a bunch of papers that were kept there. And so, yeah, as you said, who knows what what went up in flames or what disappeared. Um, at that point, so, um, one thing that I'll mention on that note though, is, um, one of the things that inspired me as I was, like I said, it took me seven years to slog through this thing. So I needed the the occasional kick in the butt to keep going. Um, but probably about a year after i had started on the book, um, my son and I were, uh, driving Home from a Christmas party, and we were talking about. Um, I was talking to him about some plot ideas that I had and how you know kind of an outline of what I was thinking the story might be, and we were. I was you know reiterating some of the things that we just talked about that were kind of the known part of the story, and then how I might blend that into uh, the plot, uh, you know, the fictional plot. And at some point in the middle of that conversation. He, Jake, my son, just stopped me. And he goes, you have to write this story. And I said, well, I intend to. Like, that's that's what we're talking about here, right? That's why we're having this conversation. And he goes, no, no, no. You don't understand what I'm saying. He said, Scoble has been lost to history for 150 plus years. And you have to tell his story. He said, this guy was a hero and people have forgotten him or not even know, you know, don't even know his name. You have to give him his voice back. And so as I, uh, you know, uh, over the ensuing years, when I got to points where I was just like, "Eh, you know what, this isn't isn't worth it anymore. You know, I think every author gets to a point where they start writing something and they reread it. And it's like, this is just crap. I'm not, you know, I've wasted all my time. And, but when I got to those points, um, I thought back to that conversation. And this was really, you know, one of the great benefits of, of doing a story that's uh, a novel that's based on a true story is I would go back to that and think about what Jake said and just say, you know what, I do need to, like, even though I don't maybe feel like pushing forward and keeping going, um, I in a way, I owed that to Scoble to tell a story and to give him a voice. So that's been my, like I said, that's been kind of my inspiration along the way to just keep pushing when uh, at times I didn't feel like pushing anymore.
0: And that's great because I've, I've been passionate about the civil war since I went to Gettysburg as a eight year old boy scout. And up until I heard about your book i never even realized that any of the uh slaves had turned spy and went back which i I couldn't even imagine doing that you spend all your time getting out and then you're going to go back in and spy but i so yes this is this is what's great about it i this is all new to me
1: yeah and it's it's uh well thank you again for uh for saying that but um you know, in a way, well, not in a way, it was new to me too. Uh, like I said, I kind of stumbled onto this by accident. And when I read that uh, CIA article, um, that essay, I, you know, obviously it was it was done by somebody who's knowledgeable about spying and spy craft and, and you know, comes from an intelligence background. So that was a, that gave it a, an immediate legitimacy Right. Because it's it wasn't written by, you know, some knucklehead like me who just wrote something down. It was somebody (laughs) who's in the business of spying. And uh, so but it was kind of eye opening in a way. And and to your point, and we think of, um, you know, you mentioned Gettysburg and people tend to think of the Civil War in terms of the great. Set piece battles, right? You have Gettysburg, you have Fredericksburg, you have uh, Vicksburg, Shiloh, you know, on and on for uh, four years worth. Um, and obviously, those all mattered. <laughs> I mean, that was yeah. that. Was, those were the things that that ultimately, in the fullest sense, decided the war. But just like modern warfare some of the underpinning of that was espionage. And uh, I have uh, two quotes that are in the, or will be in the final version uh, of the book when it comes out. And And forgive me, I don't remember, like you said, you got an advanced copy, so I can't recall if they were in there or not. But one was from Frederick Douglass. And it's, uh, he was, I, I can't quote it uh, in full off the top of my head, but he basically said, that when the war is over, the greatest source of intelligence information um will be from the black the escaped slaves who got to the north and that their bravery and their uh willingness their determination to get to the north and to share that information with the people who were trying to liberate them um was a story that you know, that needed to be told. And again, obviously I'm paraphrasing. Um, and then the second quote was from Robert E. Lee, and his was much shorter. And he said, the greatest source of intelligence to the Union army is our Negroes. And the same thing, people who were either escaping or as the Union army moved through the South, you know, later part of the war. And they were uh, free, freeing those slaves as they were taking more, ground in the south and under the emancipation proclamation then of course those people became free but same thing happened then they were interviewing them even though pinkerton was long gone by that point but they were interviewing them and gathering intelligence about who from the confederate army had just been there you know maybe days before um so those those two quotes i kind of introduced right at the very beginning of the book um again just sort of reinforcing um, the fact that even at the time, even during the Civil War, people recognized that the escaped slaves were a tremendous source of intelligence for uh, for the North. And then Scoble, of course, was the, um, the notable exception that went even further by not just reporting what he had known, but actually going back into the Confederacy under, undercover. Yes.
0: You may know, you may not know. Let's. I, I wonder because you'd mentioned that they interviewed the uh, escaped slaves who sought refuge in the North. Like Scoble was was picked because he could read and write, and he had a a higher level of intelligence because he was he was educated throughout his youth. But the ones who, you
1: know, maybe couldn't
0: read and write after their interview where. Where did they end up?
1: That's a really good question. So, um, in fact, I'm really glad you asked. This is a subject I wanted to kind of get to. Um, Very early in the war, uh, I want to say it was the fall of 1861. Um, I might be a little bit off on the date, but it was in that ballpark. Um, And, of course, for people who may not be Civil War nerds like you and me, uh, the the war broke out in the spring of 1861. Uh, the first big battle was Bull Run, which was the summer of 1861. And like I said, I want to say it was in the fall of 61. Um, there were uh, at Fort Monroe, which was in, and I should know this right off the top of my head. I think it was uh, Maryland, was or excuse me, Eastern Maryland, uh, but right close to the Chesapeake Bay, and. It was a place where Virginia and Maryland come very close together. And there were a couple of slaves who had escaped um, from the Confederate lines and made it across and made it into Fort Monroe. Fort Monroe at that time was um, um, was headed by a guy named Benjamin Butler, who was one of the kind of political appointee generals. Um, At the outset of the war, he was from New England. I'm I'm pretty sure it was Massachusetts. Um, And he was a lawyer prior to his service in the Civil War. So he really had no um, military background at all. Like I said, he was more of a political appointee. Um, By all accounts, during and after the war, a first-class jerk, Uh, Nobody seemed to like him. Uh, He was later in the war. He was the military governor of New Orleans, where they absolutely hated him. Um, And there are some kind of funny stories about that, but I I need to get off on that sidetrack. But when he was at Fort Monroe, um, it was a small number. Two, three, four slaves had, had escaped and made it inside of the fort. And the commander of the opposing Confederate forces at that time, sent a note over to Butler and said, uh, you need to return our slaves. They're our property. And uh, Butler, being a lawyer, um, and not particularly, also being an abolitionist and not particularly wanting to get the slaves back, um, sat down and and thought it out and said, you know what, if they are not people, as, as the South claimed, if they are in fact property, and they are now in union possession, then we are declaring them to be contraband and therefore they don't have to be returned. So it would be just like, and, and, you know, I hate to draw this parallel, but this was the legal basis of it as if they had captured, um, you know, cannons or, or horses or something like that in the course of of battle and they Um, they wouldn't return that because it was, it was contraband. It was considered contraband material. So of course the union army wouldn't be expected to return it to the South um, or the Confederates. And so Butler basically used their own words and thought process against them by saying, well, if slaves are property, then we have captured your property and guess what? We're not giving it back. And so that became, like I said, they, they, The term that he used was contraband of war but it actually set a precedent that spread across the entire um battlefront uh, of the entire civil war and in effect it opened the door because once um, well first of all um, most importantly president lincoln agreed with butler that that was a legal mechanism that they could use uh to allow these escaped slaves to stay and There were, you know, uh, there were a lot of there have been a lot of analyses over, again, 160 years of who was an abolitionist, who wasn't, what, you know, how did it serve this person or this party or this group um, to free the slaves or not free the slaves. And I'm not, you know, we could have a week long uh, conference on that and uh, we certainly don't need to and I'm not educated enough to do it anyway. But um, Lincoln agreed with that particular piece, and it served him and the Union because every slave that came from the South and came to the North, and Lincoln essentially said this, that and was not returned to the South, that meant one less person working on plantations and, and economically supporting the South. That meant one less person, maybe one less soldier in the army, because if a soldier had to go back and work uh, on a farm, then they're not carrying a gun, right? And the South was also using slaves to build fortifications. That's, in fact, the slaves that escaped to Fort Monroe. That's what they were doing. Um, so they were building forts, they were, um, you know, serving, uh, not serving in, but serving the Confederate army. Um, as, as enslaved people and so every one of them that left was one less essentially one less person that the united states army had to fight against and even though they weren't you know directly fighting against the slaves but uh so that was lincoln's approach he agreed with butler's decision and not just threw open the floodgates and so these these uh people were escaping they were kind of given this contraband label, if you will, well, once it started being a few and then a few dozen and then a few hundred and then a few thousand within a relatively short time, suddenly the folks in the north started to say, uh, okay, what are we gonna do with all these people that are coming across, right? They have no place to live, they have no way to support themselves. They have no, um, you know, no no method. Of, of existence um so they set up um locate a couple locations one at fort monroe later in the war one further south um on the eastern coast of south carolina i believe it was might have been north carolina um but they set up these contraband camps and the contrabands were kind of sent there where they could live it was and I, I talked about this a little bit in the book. It was a little bit of a, an odd existence where they were no longer slaves, but they weren't really quite free either. Um, they couldn't leave. They couldn't go anywhere. They couldn't come and go as they pleased. There was always the threat that if somehow the South won the war or if they were to, to uh, take over the Contraband camp, of course, all those slaves would have been immediately pulled back into slavery in the South. Um, so it was kind of odd from that standpoint, but they, they were given jobs, they were being educated, they were being paid for their work, nominally, not a whole lot, but they were being paid. Um, uh, they were being educated, they were being clothed and fed, uh, and some of those jobs were farming. So they were, you know, growing their own food and feeding the the contraband community there at those locations. Um, so that's what, that's a very, very long answer to the question, a short question that you asked. But that is that is what was happening with the slaves who were escaping and coming, <clears throat> excuse me, coming to the North. Um, they were given this contraband status and that's how they remained really until um, the end of the war. And, um, you know, at that point, it, it was kind of rolled into the entire reconstruction process, which again is a much broader topic. But, um, and uh, so that was the that was kind of the process or the mechanism uh, under which those those people escaped and stayed and, north.
0: Yeah, and and that's uh, an interesting way of how they went about doing it, because I, I'm I'm sure some people now would just. Here's some of it and go ballistic, but that's just the way it was. They weren't really considered people Uh, on on both sides. Uh, Well, in some cases,
1: yeah, in some cases, for sure. And, you know, it's really interesting in the research I've done and and some of the reading that I'm continuing to do. um, It's, uh, you know, what you just said is correct, but but yet there were other people on both sides mostly in the north but a few in the south who really were uh abolitionists and thought there should be full equality but then there were all these sort of grades in between right uh people who were completely on the opposite side who thought well blacks are just not human or subhuman and and should always be slaves um and i even you know kind of gave a little voice to that in the novel just to show how ridiculous that is um but i you know i wanted to touch on that just to show that 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 was some of the mindset um but almost like i said almost every grade in between so there were people who thought that they shouldn't be slaves um but yet they if they were freed, they shouldn't be full citizens um there were people who you know wanted the abolition of slavery but then after the war they were like well no way should we we allow blacks to vote um and then of course there are other people who were like there's no distinction they're people just like us they should have every you know right to live like we do so like i said almost every every gradation along the line and different people thought differently and and that again that was one of the things that i tried to touch on a little bit um it wasn't intended to be a um any type of essay on the human condition and obviously it's it's intended to be a spy novel but right uh but i wanted to at least allude to some of those things to kind of point out that uh uh, there were people who had you know different thoughts about uh you know about those relationships between the races
0: right and wait now we will move uh maybe a little bit towards the pinkertons themselves uh there may be quite a few people who don't realize how they started cuz we're we're fairly close to pittsburgh we should be fairly familiar with the pinkerton agency as hired guns as strike breakers. but yeah. that this is where they really got their start at the civil war as a fledgling yeah. agency
1: at, at least on a at least on a national basis yeah you're absolutely right so um just to just to touch on you know the strike uh, excuse me strike breakers and the homestead steel strike which is um might be the thing that the pinkertons are most uh notorious for not maybe not famous uh most well known for um it's kind of ironic in a way because that actually that was 1892 um, that uh, Alan Pinkerton, who founded the agency, was was long dead by then. I think he died in the 1880s, and it was his sons who were running, you know, the Pinkerton Agency at that time. Um, but you say the Pinkerton name, and people who know, you know, know that history, or or certainly know their union history, immediately say, "Oh, wow, they were strikebreakers." Um, another thing that they're somewhat well known for was uh, after uh, after the Civil War the Pinkertons were called in to try and break up the James gang, Frank and Jesse James. Um and uh that was uh the their involvement in it uh, and and Alan Pinkerton was hands on in that uh that was maybe early 1870s if memory serves um and it ended quite disastrously um again I won't kind of get into that uh story, and I don't know the details of it well enough to even relay it, but uh, there was a Pinkerton man that was killed, they tried to raid the James house, um, I think somebody else uh, who was kind of an innocent bystander was was killed or badly injured, there was an explosion, uh, it went bad in a horrible way, so that's the, that's the short version of it, but most people know Frank and Jesse James, and, and they may know that there was a Pinkerton connection there. Um, back to your question, Alan Pinkerton came from Scotland to the US. Um, I want to say in the 1840s, if I remember right, ultimately settled in uh, near Chicago. And he was, uh, um, had been hired at one point to help um, break up a, 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 a theft gang. And uh, was successful in doing that. And that led him to founding his detective agency. Um, And then as that grew in prominence, um, they did a lot of work for the railroads, which were a huge emerging industry at the time and subject to theft. You know, everybody's heard about train robberies. I just mentioned Frank and Jesse James a minute ago. And uh, so they... Um, were in need of protection, and his Chicago was at that time really emerging, emerging as a um, a rail center, kind of the gateway to the Midwest. After Pittsburgh was the gateway to the Midwest, uh, a few you know a couple of decades later, and um, so he just happened to be in the right place at the right time, made those relationships. So when the Civil War broke out, there was no united states had no intelligence service there was no cia no fbi um no no secret service um there was no the protection i mean i'm sorry the president had no protection detail um none of the things that we know today existed in that um like i said as far as intelligence service and they hadn't really needed any uh, you know up to that point um but The one of the parallels that I like to make is the outbreak of the Civil War was very similar to the start of the Cold War. And the reason I say that is when the Russians, um, you know, literally threw up the Berlin Wall and put a block between East and West Germany, uh, it happened virtually overnight. And the same thing really was true, the same conditions were true of the north and the south in the US effectively the south said okay we are we are an independent country um they didn't physically put up a wall like the berlin wall but overnight you had two warring nations that shared a common border and just like with the cold war there when that happens instantly overnight nobody gets a warning to say oh i'm going to go be on the side where i want to be It's you wake up in the morning and you read the paper and say, oh, man, my sympathies are with the North, but I live in the South or vice versa. And all of a sudden, there's a there's a blockade between free movement across there that wasn't there the day before. And just like in the Cold War. A lot of the people who were on the, you know, what I say, the wrong side of the line, the side that they didn't agree with, rather than trying to get themselves back. They just decided to become spies for the other side. And so the other thing to keep in mind is, although it's, again, not quite a parallel with Berlin, which was one city divided in half, but Richmond and Washington, D.C. are only about 90 or 100 miles apart. So you had these two warring capitals that yesterday were not opposed to each other, and today they are, right? The day after the war breaks out, all of a sudden, well, not literally, because Richmond didn't. Come the capital until a few months after. But, uh, but as soon as that happened, you had these two capitals so close together, and you had people who, again, had maybe opposing sympathies who were sort of trapped in each of those locations. So they became spies against whatever side, you know, the north or the south, whatever side they have to be living in. So because of that happening, there was a recognition at the army level and at the president's level, President Lincoln that they needed to have some type of spy service but they couldn't just put one together overnight because you have to recruit people you got to hire people you got to do all those things so their solution to that was to bring in Pinkerton and the reason the the, what enabled that was his um, involvement with the railroads and again, railroads were very high, visibility, high importance industries, particularly once the war broke out because that's how they moved troops and goods and materials. and um, but also some of the relationships that he had established there. One of those relationships was with George McClellan, who relatively early after uh, bull Run, late eighteen sixty one, I can't remember the exact date, but he was put in charge of. Uh, the Army of the Potomac, the, the main branch of the Union Army. And he brought Pinkerton with him because he realized, McClellan realized that he needed that intelligence. And he just basically picked up Pinkerton and his detectives and moved them from where they had been to Washington, D.C. And they set up shop. Like we would talk today about a security contractor working for the U.S. government. I mean, essentially, it was the same thing. And uh and so he brought uh a dozen ish of his operatives with him and then hired a few more after he got there. And one of the significant things they did that really solidified uh their position, uh, this was really prior to to Pinkerton being brought into that role that I just mentioned. But uh, when Lincoln was traveling after his election from Illinois to Washington, DC, of course he was traveling by train um there was a it's known as the baltimore plot but there was a plot that was identified by pinkerton and his agents uh to try and assassinate lincoln on his way through baltimore from pennsylvania he was going i think from philadelphia through baltimore to uh to washington because that's how the train routes ran and um so that plot was identified and um Two of his operatives, Tim Webster, name you'll recognize probably from reading the book, and another one, Kate Warren, who was one of his famous operatives. Um, They worked together to basically sneak Lincoln into Washington. They took him instead of from Philadelphia, they took him to Harrisburg and commandeered a special training, sort of snuck him in overnight and uh, got him safely to Washington, D.C. So that was... uh, would that have been April of 1861 or maybe just before that and um so when McClellan proposed the idea later of using Pinkerton as that you know government security contractor or intelligence contractor that I just mentioned Lincoln was fully in favor of it because he'd already had that interaction with Pinkerton and his operatives and you know they may have even saved his life hard hard to know what might have happened had yeah. it gone otherwise, right but um so all of that was the lead up to um, Pinkerton's um, Pinkerton and his operatives um functioning as that as that intelligence arm of the army um one quick one quick note on that is that uh, depending on who you ask and how you look at it, they did a decent job. gathering intelligence now mcclellan was always kind of crying wolf and saying well the confederates have twice as many or three times as many people as i do i need more soldiers i need more of this i need more cannons more you know whatever um and he never wanted to fight and that was one of kind of the real that's why he got fired ultimately (laughs) but um but it was one of the real criticisms of him. pinkerton because he and pinkerton were good friends what was happening was Pinkerton would get pretty reliable information back from his spies. And then he would inflate the numbers in terms of uh, what the Confederate troop sizes were. And then McClellan would take those and inflate them again. And then when he was reporting it to Lincoln or uh, to the other generals of the army, um, it was, you know, it was many times what the reality was. And so the, there's a, there's been justifiably a lot of criticism of Pemberton over the years in that spying role, um, but by the time that he and McClellan were kind of shown the door, or before that time, they one of the sources that I read pointed out that they knew, and like by the time of the Peninsula campaign, where McClellan first tried to march on uh, Richmond, um, by the time that happened, they knew almost every Confederate unit. And knew um what their real troop size was. That wasn't what they were reporting, but they knew what it was and they knew what their armaments were. And so, you know, he wasn't the terrible spy that he sometimes um uh, portrayed as, but it wasn't that he was so bumbling that they didn't gather the right information, it was just not reported accurately because he was kind of doing what his boss wanted to do and effectively sort of kissing up to the boss and inflating the numbers to make it look worse. Um, so all of that is to say, and this is what I like to say, Pinkerton was a fantastic, groundbreaking detective. He was a middling spy, and he was a horrible writer, which is what I <laughs> talked about earlier. So that's kind of my my short version of all everything I just told you there, uh, as far as Pinkerton.
0: So So I want to ask if if there's anything extra you want to add, because I have a million questions, but every single one of them will definitely give something away. And he (laughs) said, I I don't want to do that. So if there's anything you want to freely add here yet.
1: Uh, I appreciate that. Um, One... Uh, one thing that I maybe talk about, and I'd be interested to hear your your thoughts on this, um, having read it. Um, one of the things that I struggle with as far as the uh, physical construction of the writing of the book was writing um, in dialect and, you know, um, so what where, where I had a hard time was I, I don't'll uh, just be straight up. I don't particularly like reading books that have a lot of dialect um, dialect dialogue in them um it, it's all it's always a little clunky when you're trying to read it because you know the eye just doesn't flow across it um, and uh, I didn't particularly like writing it either, frankly, but the reason I did it, was because, like, again, to to use a different example, let's say we were talking about uh, somebody who was undercover during the Cold War in East Berlin. And you could just say, uh, you know, he said to the person, please let me in, in perfect German, right? You could just put the the phrase in perfect German there. And it's 100% clear that he's talking as an undercover agent, right? The struggle with Scoble was everybody speaking English, <laughs> so I had to have a way of showing when he was sort of using his undercover voice as opposed to when he wasn't using it. And the only way that I, I really landed on to be able to do that was, you know, using that dialect and, and when he was sort of uh, talking like a slave and then, you know, not talking like a slave in different parts of the book to show that distinction. Um and i I struggle with that. I hope you know I was successful in doing that, but I'm interested in hearing your your feedback on that as a reader.
0: yeah, actually it i I know what you mean. I've read other books like that, and it it can be tough, but yours seem to work fairly well because as you said, it creates the distinction of these almost two personalities. Right He really had two personalities. He was he was much more educated than other other slaves were and could speak English well, which would have just stood out like a sore thumb whether he was a spy or not
1: or not exactly exactly. So
0: I, I almost think you had to make that distinction somehow.
1: Yeah, and that's what uh, that you hit the nail on the head. It's, it was drawing that distinction. But, of course, drawing it for a reader, right? It had to be on the page or else you couldn't yeah, <laughs> you know it exactly. wouldn't make sense. It, and uh, so while well, I'm glad to hear that, i I will tell you that I tried to I tried to make that as minimal as possible, in other words, just enough to to make it clear that he was talking this way versus talking this way. Um, and as you said, in different circumstances because he didn't he wouldn't want to be discovered um but but without making it just over the top where it was just clunky and hard to read and off-putting i really didn't want to you know i really did not want to do that so um
0: yeah i'm I'm glad to
1: hear your feedback on that because like i said that's something that's been you know that's nagged at me from almost the beginning because i didn't know another way to
0: it it definitely does and in fact in this case i'd say it even heightens the character more to a degree you get a a better feeling for who the character is because even in in real life as him in real life he would have had to speak that way to even some other slaves so they could kind of understand him even
1: right or again not that he wouldn't stand out yeah uh in in that circumstance either so i know we're both tiptoeing around
0: yeah Not exactly maybe <laughs> may, maybe it's best if we if we we quit tiptoeing around before we do crash into the full-on <laughs> thing and then everybody knows so
1: right. well rob when is the book coming out where can we find it it will be out on november 17th um and it will be available in both um ebook format and paperback uh on that date um, you can go on uh, Amazon right now and pre-order it or Barnes and Noble or uh, multiple other sites. Um, Amazon, for whatever reason, uh, they won't let you pre-order the paperback. They'll only let you pre-order the uh, the ebook, the Kindle version. Um, I believe you can pre-order it from um, the paperback that is from uh, Barnes and Noble, however. Um, and I know you can pre-order the ebook. Um, so it will be available, uh, at all those places beginning November 17th, it should be available. Um, if they don't have it in stock at your local bookstore, whatever that might be, they should, well, first of all, ask them why in the heck it's not available, why they don't already have it on the shelf. Um, but they should be able to order it. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it should be available, um, at almost all outlets, including independent bookstores. So.
0: And I, I will share the the link for everybody where they can pre-order the uh, ebook version of it. Uh, appreciate that. I, I I look forward to the day it comes out, and I, I just want to plug it again to everybody. If you have any interest in the Civil War or spies or thrillers, it's a definite. Definitely have to read it.
1: Well, thanks again, Thomas. I really appreciate that, and that's. That's really, um, you know, you kind of touched on there. One of the things that I've, that I've been focused on with the book, I really wanted it to be at its heart, a spy thriller. Um, I mean, that's really where I thought it. And and I think it has a lot of the um, traditional elements, tropes of a spy thriller. There's again, without spoiling too much, but it starts with a border crossing, which is, you know every spy novel is like well we're trying to get across from here to here you know trying to get out of enemy territory right and that's the opening scene in the book and we already talked about some of the undercover missions and um uh you know decoding messages and and a yeah. lot of those things are in there
0: you can um, and you yeah you can't have a spy book
1: without somebody sneaking around in the dark right exactly <laughs> and there's no shortage of that so yeah um and that's really what i wanted it to be but at the same time i think it does um you know cross over the bridge into also being a historical novel and that seems to be uh historical fiction that seems to be the part that um readers like yourself and some other folks who've read it are that's the feedback they're giving me is they really like the historical part the um you know, knowing what Richmond was like during the Civil War, what Washington was like, and just talking about the, you know, the muddy streets and the cobblestone sidewalks, and you know, all those types of things, um, people seem to latch on to to that. Uh, so hopefully, it'll appeal to both audiences, and you know, it'll cross over there. But uh, we shall see.
0: Oh, I believe it definitely will. So, Rob, thanks again for talking to me about it. Like I said, everybody. Order the book, pre-order it, order it, go out, get it. If your bookstore doesn't have it, tell them to get it.
1: So. Well, thanks a million again, Thomas. I appreciate it. And and I should have started with this right up front, but thank you very much for taking the time to read it and and you know, give me your feedback. I mean, I thank you for having me back on the show and, and for the kind words, which I certainly appreciate, but uh just for uh for offering to uh you know take some hours out of your out of your busy uh, lifetime and and read, read through it. I really appreciate that. Thank you too. Thanks to everybody for listening. Uh,
0: Remember, if you like the show, you can share it with all your friends. We can be found on all the major podcast players. Uh, We can be found on Facebook and you can also find us and catch the show notes at historyfromthehomestead.com.